Made Visible helps people with invisible illnesses feel seen and heard. It provides a platform for people who seem fine but aren't to share their experiences. It also helps to create a new awareness of how we can be sensitive and supportive to those with invisible illnesses. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so glad you tuned in today. Today's episode is brought to you by Lily CBD. Today's guest is one of the three sisters in the band Haim. Esti Haim is the bassist in the band and has been navigating life with diabetes for the last 20 years. Welcome, Esti. Hi. I'm so stoked to be here. Ditto. Happy to have you here. So I heard you and your sisters on the Sibling Revelry podcast with Kate and Oliver Hudson a few weeks ago, and you said that you take every opportunity to speak about diabetes, and truly, I couldn't have jumped faster to contact you. (laughs) You know, it's like I hear musicians and celebrities talk about their experiences, and I'm like, oh, I hope they'll be on the show one day, and this was like, she said she'll do it. (laughs) I mean, Essie, it's time to put your money where your mouth is. I love it so much. Well, so tell us a little bit about your type 1 diabetes diagnosis that you had when you were age 14 and yeah. what led to getting diagnosed. Well, my diagnosis story is actually pretty, uh, I think, incredible. I was on vacation with my family the summer going into high school, and I was in a mall with my grandma. And my parents weren't with me. And in the middle of the mall, I ended up passing out. It was summertime. It was really hot. I was like thirsty all the time. I was like, I literally, I say that I was like a funnel. I was like drinking water while sitting on the toilet and peeing. It was just Mm -hmm. like a constant flow of fluid coming in and out of me. And I'd lost all this weight. And like, that wasn't a problem for me. I was like, great. I'm going to like go into my freshman year of high school looking svelte as fuck. <laughs> and, um, but I was also like bumping into walls. Like my eye, everything was so blurry. And I'd had 20-20 vision my whole life. So I think my family knew something was up, but we weren't in LA. We weren't at home. And I was in this mall and I passed out. And my grandma, who like, she thinks of herself kind of as like a healer. She touched my forehead and like my elbow and I came to and she was like, are you okay? And I was like, I I think I'm fine. And my grandma's like, you're going to be fine. You just need some water. And I like had some water. And then my grandma told my parents and they were like, okay, well, the second you get home, we need to go get some tests done. I get back to LA two days before my first day of high school And the day before my first day of high school, I go to Kaiser and they, you know, they ask me all these questions and I take all these blood tests and they were like, we don't know what this is. You could have a parasite because you've lost all this weight. And I was like, okay, cool. Like, but don't know what that means, but like chill. I have to like pick out my outfit for the first day of school tomorrow. So I'm going to go home. And I go to school the next day. It's my first day of school. And I'm sitting in biology class and we're reading the syllabus and my teacher, Miss McQuarrie, is like, you know, the first thing that we're going to kind of deal with is the human body and we're going to talk about autoimmune diseases, you know, like diabetes, you know, and the warning signs of diabetes, you know, constant thirst, weight loss, 
blurry vision. Like she just starts going through all these different autoimmune diseases. And I'm sitting there like, okay, like, I don't think I'm a hypochondriac, but like, this sounds a lot like what I'm going through. And the high school that I went to was an arts high school and I was a theater major. So of course I'm like this, you know, overly dramatic 14 year old. So I like stand up in the middle of class and I run out of the classroom and I run to the nurse's office and I scream at the nurse. I'm diabetic. (laughs) I know I'm diabetic. I'm assuming like, you know, because it was, it's an arts high school, people are dramatic all the time when they come into the nurse's office. And so my, my nurse, this very kind woman was like, let's take a beat to use a theater term. Like, let's take a beat. And let's sit down and I'll give you some orange juice. Like, let's have a minute. Of course, give me some orange juice when I'm an undiagnosed type one diabetic. And I call my mom and I'm like, mom, I'm diabetic. And she's like, we, ugh, like, go back. I get it. Like, I know the first day of high school is hard. Go back to class. I promise you'll make friends. Don't worry about it. Go back to biology. And then three hours later a page came to my classroom and asked me to go to the main office. And both my parents were there to pick me up because my test results had come back and I was in fact diabetic. So I diagnosed myself three hours before Tyler did. (laughs) Wow. That is wild. It was wild. What did it feel like when you actually got that diagnosis and that confirmation? Well, it's, it's (laughs) the part that I didn't mention when I was at Kaiser was I was also very curious about Accutane because I had really bad cystic acne. My doctor was like, okay, well, yeah, we'll test for that too. We'll test if you're okay. You know, you you have to get blood tests to be on Accutane. And I was like, great, great, great. Chill, chill, chill. Like, I really want to get on this drug. I'm tired of like dealing with the clear sill every night. And like, I just want this to be like gone. And so when my parents picked me up to take me to the doctor, And he was like, so you have type one diabetes, you know, you're going to have to take four to five shots a day, you have to test your blood sugar, like 10 to 20 times a day, you have to change your diet, you have to exercise. And I was like, chill, 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 cool, cool, cool. What about the Accutane? (laughs) Priorities here. Yeah, priorities. And my doctor was like, yeah, about that. Probably not going to happen. However, let's backtrack to this chronic illness that you're going to be dealing with for the rest of your life. And the conversation that I had with my doctor initially, I had so many questions and, you know, my parents, their big question was like, is she going to be okay with pregnancy? And my doctor was like, yes, you know, as long as she takes care of herself, we deal with diabetics all the time that have healthy, happy pregnancies with healthy, happy babies. And then my question was, you know, I want to be a touring musician when I grow up, I want to see the world and I want to travel and I want to be a rock star. That's my dream. And my doctor was like, yeah, I would rethink that. I was like, really? He's like, yeah, I mean, it's probably not in the cards. Do you remember what that felt like to hear? I was devastated. I started crying because, you know, I've been writing in my diary about seeing the world and wanting to be in a band with my family. And sorry, I'm getting emotional. Okay. And to hear that it might not be something that I would be able to do was really hard. 
And thank God I have two really supportive parents who, when we left the office, were like, listen, you listen to your doctor when it comes to medical advice, but when it comes to life advice, you listen to yourself and you do everything you can to make your dreams come true. And, you know, I'm really thankful that I, I had that. And I had it for my sisters too. Both my sisters were like, and I, you know, I was 14. I think Alana was, Alana was eight. Danielle was 10. And, you know, they were like, listen, like you can do anything you want. If you want to be a singer, if you want, I mean, at that time we didn't have high and we were, we had a band with our parents, but I knew that I wanted to see the world and that I wanted to play music. And that was my dream. You know, I just wanted to be an entertainer. And then to hear that it was going to, he basically was just like, I would rethink it because your life is going to be harder if that's something that you choose to do medically. It's going to be difficult to be able to maintain a healthy lifestyle and be a touring musician. And that's why he told me that I might want to rethink it. And so, again, I really supported family that was just like, fuck that. Do whatever you want. It's your life. Like, you know, we're born and then after, you know, we die. What you do in the middle is totally up to you. And you can't really let anything hold you back. And literally my dad was like, if you told me that you wanted to be an astronaut, I'd be like, maybe that might not be in the cards. That might be a little hard. I love that. I mean, it's yeah. so clear that you have this incredibly supportive family. So did you go to a new doctor after that? I mean, was that so soul crushing that you said, let's find someone else that's actually going to be supportive here? No, I mean, with Kaiser, I don't really think that we had the luxury of doing that. Again, my parents were like, medically, listen to your doctor. Everything else, like you listen to your heart and your gut. It, they'll never fail you. And my doctor was great in the sense that like he taught me about, you know, how to manage my diabetes, you know, the best foods to eat. I saw a nutritionist, but I'd never really talked to him about the mental challenges of diabetes, which I think no one really talks about either. And it's such a huge component to diabetes. Like there's a big correlation between depression and diabetes. It doesn't affect every diabetic, but there's a large amount of diabetics who suffer from depression and I'm one of them. And when I was diagnosed, you know, I was a teenager. I was already going through so many hormonal changes that like, I didn't know if it was because of my diabetes or just because of the crazy shit that I was dealing with being a teen with chronic illness, trying to go into a field that is largely based on like what you look like and like this pressure to be thin and once I started taking shots, I gained all this weight. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, I was so svelte and skinny before I was diagnosed. And like, here I am, I put on all this weight. And it really it got to me. And you know, I wanted a boyfriend. And I wanted boys to like me. And like, I was like, you know, everything that I was seeing on TV and in magazines and in movies was like, thin was in and I suffered from the compare and despair trap that I think a lot of young women fall into. And I didn't really have anyone to talk to about this. I wasn't going to talk about it with my doctor. I didn't really talk about it with my parents, the mental component. When it came to like, oh, my blood sugar's high, I would tell my parents. I also had like such 
a supportive friend group. The other thing that I think that was so important when I was first diagnosed was I was such a big SNL fan growing up. And I thought Gilda Radner was the funniest person I'd ever seen. I thought that her comedic timing and just, she was so like likable. Like there was like, she truly was like, and just felt so warm and like cozy watching her. And that was before I was diagnosed with diabetes. And then when I was diagnosed, my dad was like, you know, Gilda Radner had cancer. She died of cancer. But before she died, she wanted to make cancer funny. And that was how she dealt with her disease was that she kept it really lighthearted and said, you know, you have to laugh at the stuff that's hard for you. And like the things that give you pain, like you have to just give it some levity. And, and that to me, I was like, oh, wow, she made cancer funny. If she can make cancer funny, I can make diabetes funny. I'm with you. I love that concept. I don't know if you're familiar with the podcast, The Hilarious World of Depression, or the comedian Gary Goleman. They both are totally focused on depression and mental illnesses and sort of the humor behind it or taking things into a humorous way, because if you don't do that, life is so sad. Oh, of course. I think it's also normal to be sad about those things. And I mean, you hear me, I was crying about, you know, an experience that I had when I was younger with diabetes. But like, at the same time, like, for every sad story I have, I have like 25 hilarious, hilarious stories about like being a diabetic and getting out of a speeding ticket because I tell the police officer like my blood, like my insulin pump popped out of my body and I really need insulin. And that's why I was speeding. And like my friends were in my car and, you know, and the officer was like, Oh my God. Yeah, please get home. So sorry. And I got out of a speeding ticket. My friends were like, you're insane. Like, you're crazy and also so lucky that you're able to do that it's amazing to think that luck is part of that i look at it as like life gives you lemons you make sugar-free lemonade so you mentioned your friends do you remember going into high school i mean this is right before you started do you remember having a conversation with friends or letting them know that you were diabetic all of them literally every single one of them told them my diagnosis story like And again, like, you know, all of my friends, we were all theater kids. So like everything turned into like this dramatic, huge, like almost like the Iliad or something. It was like this dramatic story. Essie goes on vacation and, you know, passes out in a, you know, the story I just told, but my friends and I kind of made it this like mythic, it was of like mythic proportions. Um, And my friends were all super supportive and they were like, we just want you around forever. So whatever you need us to do. And I taught them how to like use a glucagon shot if my blood sugar gets really low and you know we compared it to like that scene in pulp fiction they're like oh my god it's gonna be like you know when the syringe goes into uma thurman's heart and she comes to i was like yeah exactly (laughs) we were like young and you know everything i was the only diabetic in my high school and it was your norm and then you made it your friend's norm too that it wasn't this like weird thing because you made it so sort of casual and lighthearted, although it's obviously serious. A hundred percent. I'm also really lucky that I had friends that were just like, we love you and we just want you to be comfortable and we want to make sure that you're safe. So like whatever we need to do, like tell me what to do. What lifestyle changes did you make at that point when you were diagnosed? It was mostly the stuff that I was eating. 
I used to go to Jamba Juice all the time. That was like my favorite thing was to get a peach pleasure like every day after school and middle school, you know, and you know, with like little things like that, like, oh, like Essie's not going to be able to drink that Jamba Juice after school anymore because there's too much sugar in it. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Lily CBD. Lily CBD is organically grown and an everyday essential to help you feel alive. Russell Marcus was a guest on episode 51 of the show and spoke about the value that CBD had on his mom's health while managing chronic pain. Over the last year, I've been regularly using Lily CBD at night, shortly before I go to bed to calm my nerves, and I see that it really helps relax me. I even love the taste. Head to lilycbd.com and use code MADEVISIBLE, one word, at checkout for 15% off. That's lilycbd.com, code MADEVISIBLE, one word, at checkout for 15% off. Now, back to the show. But it was like, you know, I think that the lifestyle change was just, (sighs) when you have diabetes and you're first diagnosed, you realize that like, you're your own mathematician, you're your own nutritionist, and you're your own nurse. You have to like kind of wear many hats as a diabetic. Like how many carbohydrates are in this? How many carbohydrates are out of fiber? Like if I eat this before noon, is that okay? Like how many carbs can I have before noon? It's, it's almost like a never ending math problem. And then the moments where your blood sugar is high and like you feel like a failure and then it becomes like, oh, I just don't want to test my blood sugar because every time it's high, I feel like a failure. So I want to eliminate that feeling. So I'm just not going to test. And then you hear from your doctor, like, listen, you haven't been testing a lot. Like once let's get back into the habit of like testing before and after meals. And then that kind of becomes this thing called diabetes burnout, which a lot of diabetics go through where it just mentally becomes too much. And you just kind of are like, fuck this. I don't want to deal with it. I'm not going to test my blood sugar. I'm going to eat this fucking pizza and I don't care what it does to my body. I don't care if my blood sugar is off the charts, whatever. I just want to live my fucking life and not have to think about it. And then that leads to complications when you do that for an extended period of time. It's obviously not good for you. So yeah, I mean, my lifestyle was just like when I was 14, it was, I'm lucky that I went to a school that you know, instead of PE, we had dance. So I danced every day, which was really nice. So that helped with my blood sugar. I just had to watch what I ate. You know, I had to really count carbohydrates and, you know, really learn what agreed with me and what didn't. It's weird. It's like, there's certain foods that spike your blood sugar in some people and some that don't. I have friends that can like, drink and their blood sugars are fine. And I have other friends that drink and their blood sugar is off the scale. You know what I mean? Like it really depends on the person. And that's also why it's hard, I think, to manage diabetes from a doctor's perspective, because everyone's so different. Yeah, I think that's the case with a lot of conditions. I mean, even when I talk to my doctor about my health, there are certain things that are really unique about my way of doing things and my body compared to my doctor and other patients. So how do you decide when and if you take the risk of eating something that may be not on the list of things you should be eating or drinking? Hi. I think in general, for me, I know that when I eat a piece of pizza, my blood sugar is just going to, it's going to be high. No matter how much insulin I take, 
no matter what I do, my blood sugar is going to be high. And the thing that's hard is like bread, cheese, and tomato sauce. Like, there, is there a better combo? No. I love pizza. And so I like to think that like I reserve it as like a treat. I'm also really lucky that I have a boyfriend who is also really supportive. And since becoming my boyfriend has been relentless when it comes to researching nutrition and diabetes. And he weirdly almost knows more about diabetes than I do, which is kind of crazy. And like, in the most supportive way, he'll be like, today, we're going to make good choices. We're going to eat right, we're going to exercise, like he's my biggest cheerleader. He's never like, you can't eat that, you know, because that's a little controlling. But he's always like, listen, do whatever you want to do. I just want you to make sure that you know what you're doing. He'll go out and get ice cream with me and like, we'll share it instead of me having a whole one. I know my limits and I have a boyfriend that's very supportive of helping me stick to those limits because it's also really easy to just be like, like I said, like diabetes burnout, like fuck this. I want to eat a whole pizza. Sue me. Like I just, that's what I want. That's what I want to do. <laughs> I was researching you a bit online and the number of articles that reference pizza. Oh yeah. <laughs> You're amazing. I'm with you. It's my number one favorite food. Oh, my vice. I hear you. I don't smoke. Like I've never done like crazy drugs. You know, I smoked pot in high school, but like the thing that truly is my kryptonite is pizza. I love that your boyfriend is as supportive as he is and that he's clearly learned in order to support you more information that maybe you know, just to know, you know, what needs to be done in order to take the best care of you. Do you remember exactly. telling him when you met him about having diabetes? I think it was one of the first things we talked about. So Adam and I have been together for three years. And unfortunately, I've had boyfriends that weren't supportive. I had a boyfriend that, you know, we talked about diabetes and stuff. We'd been dating long enough to where we kind of started talking about kids and pregnancy. And I guess, you know, he had kind of done some research and he was like, oh, shit, like, we could have a child that's diabetic. And I was like, yeah, you know, the, the chances are, I think it's like 5% or something, 5 to 10%. And he was like, oh, well, I don't, I don't want it. Like, why would we have a kid if they're going to be diabetic? Oh, and I was like, well, I think this is more of a litmus test than anything. Like, if this is a problem for you. Then you're obviously not the right person for me. So, I mean, that wasn't, that was one of the reasons we broke up. There were other reasons too. But like, what I'm trying to say is like, I've had partners that weren't supportive or thought it was unattractive unattractive oh my god I can't oh yeah that were like so I have this like ring of scar tissue around my abdomen from taking shots and then like for that fat to go away I could exercise 70 times a day and like it might get better but like the way to really get rid of scar tissue is you have to have it surgically removed so I've always been like fuck it it's part of my body like I've learned to love it it's there. And that's it. Like period, end of story. And then I had a boyfriend who would like poke at it and make fun of it. And then would like try to like cover it up and be like, no, I think it's cute. And I'd be like, but you're saying that like you're pointing it out and saying that it's there and calling it an inner tube. 
Like it's, I, <laughs> I like Adam. Adam is a sweet, sensitive, very supportive. Like he loves me. He loves my body. He thinks he tells me that I'm beautiful all the time. And he tells me all the time that he wants me around forever. And so whatever it takes for that to happen, we're going to do. And when we talk about kids, he's like, listen, if you want to carry, that's great. If you don't want to carry, let's get a surrogate. If you want, like, let's get you like whatever you want to do, that's going to make you feel comfortable. So, and my sisters love him and my parents love him. And cause, and the reason they do is because they see he takes such good care of me because he truly just wants the best for me, you know? Yeah, that's huge. That's an amazing support system to have. You mentioned the mental side of things, and I wonder what you do for yourself to support your mental health. Do you go to therapy? Do you take medication? Do you meditate? What's that look like? Yes. Oh, I wish I could meditate. I feel like I have like severe undiagnosed ADHD. Meditation for me, I've tried so many times and like I've never been able to do it, which is very frustrating. Adam is very good at it. He meditates all the time. I go to therapy. I go to therapy twice a week. I love my therapist. And I'm on an SSRI. I'm on Zoloft. And I thank Hashem for Zoloft, truly. You know, when my therapist was first kind of, we were talking about getting on an SSRI, she kind of described it as like, listen, it's not like Zoloft solves your problems. Like, it's not like all of a sudden you take a pill and and everything is like, rosy and happy and rainbows and like your life is forever you're just stoked about everything that's not what it is it's more that it kind of takes away the clouds so that you can kind of see everything more clearly and then you're more you're more able to make better decisions and because I was feeling very bogged down by my illness and you know, going in and out of diabetes burnout and having been on tour for 10 years and dealing with different time zones and, you know, not being able to find good food to eat and dealing with high A1Cs and my doctor being like, you need to pay, you know, more attention to your illness and me being like, no, I'm trying, I'm trying to become successful. I want to get signed. I want to get blah. Like my career was in the driver's seat really. And my diabetes was kind of on the back burner. And so when I got back from our first tour, I started going to therapy and my doctor was like, you know what you need to do to take care of yourself. Let's get you some help. Let's get you on an SSRI and see how you feel. And within five days, I was a new person, a hundred percent. Five days. Five days. Five days of being on, on Zoloft. It was like, I finally again, she was right. It wasn't like my life was rosy and cheery and like, you know, all my problems were solved. It wasn't that at all. It was that I felt like I finally had the capability and the energy even to start really taking into account my health and really taking care of myself and kind of confronting all these issues and problems that I had really kind of locked away and not really wanted to deal with and kind of pushed to the wayside. I finally was able to kind of confront it and be like, okay, no, like I know what I need to do. I need to eat right. I need to be exercising every day, even if it's like a 30 minute walk after dinner, like SD, you need to do that. And I wasn't doing that for a long time. I was going in and out of really taking care of myself and then not taking care of myself and taking care of myself and not. 
and realizing the importance of consistency, which unfortunately is a really big thing in the invisible illness world. Yeah. Oh my God. Like I called it getting on the wagon and falling off the wagon. I did a lot of that in my 20s. And I think it's also, you know, your 20s, you know, I went to UCLA and it was an amazing experience, but like it was my first time living on my own and I was eating dorm food and, you know, I was living on like cup of noodles and I was working at a a coffee shop and I had like two shekels to rub together. And at the end of the night, the manager would be like, yeah, you can take home whatever, you know, pastries are, are left over. And I would just, you know, it's all heavy carbs. So I would be eating scones for dinner and bagels and cream cheese for dinner. And like, you know, and my blood sugar would skyrocket and I would be up all night trying to get it down. And then I'd have to wake up the next day after no sleep and go to class. And cortisol raises blood sugar, stress of stress raises blood sugar and lack of sleep raises blood sugar. So like, I was super topsy turvy. Most of my time at college, it was a big roller coaster, but you know, I made it out alive. I got my degree, which I'm very proud of. I'm actually the first person on my dad's side of the family to get a college degree. So I'm very proud of that. That's huge. Mazel. Yeah. Thank you. It was a big deal. My mom went to UCLA. So that was a big deal for her too. I went to her alma mater. But yeah, I, I think because I stayed in LA, my family's in LA, I think, you know, a lot of kids, especially in LA are like, I want to go to New York, or I want to go to Chicago, or I want to go to college, not in the city that I grew up in. And my family was kind of of the same. You know, they I got into NYU, and I got into Carnegie Mellon. And you know, I was I wanted to be Felicity, I was like, I'm gonna work at Dean and DeLuca, I'm (laughs) going to fall in love with my RA. And that's gonna be my life. And my parents were like, well, first of all, we're not paying 200 grand for you to get a theater degree. Like that's not happening. But you got into UCLA and like, I think that that's a good option for you. And so that's where I went. I think for me, having my family in the same city that I went to college was very beneficial. And I understand why parents are apprehensive about letting their kid go abroad for college when they have a kid that has diabetes. I 100% get it. I do think that it's possible. I have friends that, you know, are diabetic and they went to Northwestern and that are from LA and they went to University of Miami and they were fine. But I know from speaking to their parents that it was really hard for them to have a kid. Well, not not a kid. I mean, you're an adult after you turn 18, but like to have a child of yours go abroad after taking care of them for the majority of their life and being able to check in with them with their blood sugars and, you know, portion out their food for them. Like now it's their responsibility and it's not like you can just get in a car and drive to them if they need help. It's a little scary. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And yet it can be done. And obviously you've gone on tour and have managed over these years what has been the most challenging part of being a touring musician with this? I think the most challenging part is like finding, you know, it sounds so dumb, but like finding food. <laughs> if Does that make sense? Like of when you're on a bus in the middle of the UK and like the only food that's open is like gas station food. And like you haven't 
seen a piece of lettuce in like a week and a half. That for me was really hard, especially when we were first touring. When we, you know, we had no money, we were on a shoestring budget, and I was kind of at the mercy again of like gas station food. So I was eating like gas station hot dogs, and you know, and granted, like and like Cheetos, and you know, just stuff that like isn't very good for you, even if you don't have diabetes. Even if you don't have diabetes, exactly. So like. <laughs> Not the best thing, but again, listen, I'm also lucky that, you know, we had the money to afford the food. So like, I I also understand that, but managing diabetes and and being in that position, that was probably the hardest thing. Also like keeping my insulin cold and making sure that it wasn't going bad. And if I broke a vial of insulin and I didn't have any left, like finding a pharmacy where I could buy a similar type of insulin that I use in the States while abroad you know, and being able to talk to my doctor, even though there was a time change. And that was a little difficult, especially when we were first starting out. And then just like the, you know, sleep schedules and, you know, not getting enough sleep. And and also, there's a surge of adrenaline that happens when you're on stage, and you know, you're running around and like your adrenaline is at an all time high. And then you go back to the bus and like you're praying that you'll be able to go to sleep. But a lot of times because your adrenaline is surging through your body, you don't really get to sleep for like another four or five hours. And then you have to wake up the next morning early and do sound check. And it's just hard to make sure that you get enough sleep because sleep and lack of sleep affects your blood sugar. So that was a little difficult, I think. But again, like, you know, like I said, my dream was to be able to go on tour and see the world. That's all I ever wanted. And so I think everyone has gripes with their job. You know, there's parts of your job where you're like, I fucking hate this. But there's also parts of your job where you're like, I can't imagine doing anything else. And I think it's no different with me. It's like the parts of my job that I don't like are because, you know, there's certain things that happen to me because I'm a diabetic. But like at the same time, I would never want to do anything else. I make it work. And again, I'm lucky that I have like Danielle and Alana on the road with me. And I think it also makes my parents feel safer knowing that I have two rocks with me. Like Danielle and Alana are my rock. And like when I'm feeling insecure or I'm feeling bummed about something, like they're always there for me. And when, you know... When I'm like, no, 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 it's okay. Like, I'll just have like, you know, the bar food after the show. My sisters are like, no, we're going to find a 24 hour market and we're going to get you shit that's actually good for you. That's so huge to have. So are there things that you do prior to stepping on stage that are like your non-negotiables to take care of your health? And are there foods that are on your rider? Yes. Our rider's actually really funny. I mean, like we're so antithetical, I think, to like normal quote unquote like rock band riders (laughs) like on our specific rider it's a lot of like ginger and this is gonna sound like so la when i when i say this out loud i mean like the stuff on our rider is like stuff for our voice so there's like ginger and lemon and honey and i can't have the honey but we get a lot of orange juice in case i have a low on stage i also have Snickers bars in case my blood sugar goes low. I also have glucose tabs, but I carry those with me anyway. I put them on the rider just in case someone like sees them, but like they don't really have, like you have to kind of go to CVS to get glucose tabs. So Mm -hmm. I don't really put those on the rider, 
there was a year when my sisters and I were like, let's just see what we can put, like put on a writer and get away with. <laughs> we, uh, we put lotto tickets on it for a little bit. We put um, puppies one time. Oh, didn't wow. I know really wanted puppies. Um, Did you get them? No, unfortunately, <laughs> no. We'll get like a, like a bottle or two of booze just to have for after the show and like to share with the crew and, but for the most part, it's just like, it's like hummus, <laughs> it's like hummus and, and like red pepper because there's so much vitamin C in, in red pepper. And, you know, we're always scared that we're going to get sick on the road and then we have to, you know, skip a show or cancel a show. And that's like our worst nightmare. So like, there's a lot of like health, like, you know, we'll ask for like recognition tea just to kind of keep our immune system and like boost our immune system. But like the stuff on our rider is like not, I mean, you know, and you hear like about all these, you know, these writers like, oh, only the blue M&Ms. Like, I don't, I think that's kind of like an 80s thing. I don't think that people do that anymore. I could be wrong. I think you're wrong, unfortunately, because I referenced this on an episode that I recorded yesterday with somebody that I used to do event production. And there was someone that required only one type of M&M, one color M&M. Stop. Yeah. In the 2000s. So yeah, it's still happening. I can't. No, yeah. we don't do that. I'm like, give me like a Sabra hummus and like, I call it a day. Like I'm <laughs> chill. I'm good. Like give me a lemon and some hummus. Has there ever been a time when music and your diabetes seem to not be able to coexist in your life? No. That's huge. Never. And again, I think this comes from my pair. I have like two very, very strong, very supportive parents. My dad was always like, you just need to keep fighting and, you know, striving for what you want. You can never give up. That's what life is. It's literally like you need to be a pizza oven. You never turn off. And like, my dad is not from America. So like, I didn't really understand what it meant when he said that. But then when I researched it, I was like, oh, I get it. Like pizza ovens, like, categorically like they never really turned off they just stay on and I started to realize like what he was saying like oh you just need to keep pushing yourself and striving for what you want and you know that's just kind of how my dad has always lived his life and my mom too so with music it's like it never really felt any different like the only thing that I can like kind of think of is like because I'm a bass player I have calluses on my fingers and before I had a CGM, before I had a continuous glucose monitor, testing my blood sugar sometimes was hard because I couldn't get a good amount of blood out of my fingers because they were so calloused over. But then I just started testing on other parts of my body and that was it. But like music and, and no, I can't, no. Not really an option in your mind. Like it, you, no. you make it work no matter what. No. Yeah. So you guys came out with a new album last month, which is incredible and has been on repeat in my house, truly. And I'm not oh, just... Oh, thank that. you. Thank you. And I loved watching your Cantor's Deli video, which you and your sisters did at the end of June. What's yes. it been like putting out a new album during COVID and not being able to tour on it? Uh, it's heartbreaking. <laughs> Honestly, it's really hard. I mean, I feel like... I, I say this in every interview we've had during lockdown. I just uh, touring is the thing that brings me joy. Uh, playing music in front of people, p- playing music that I've written and and you know hearing the lyrics sung back to me is the thing that truly makes me happy. 
And to not have that, especially, you know, my sisters and I are obviously, we're so proud of this record and this body of work. And we worked tirelessly and meticulously, like combed over every sound, every tone, all of it, you know, for so long. And we're obviously really excited that it's out, but it's a little sad for us to not be able to play these songs live. And even when we were making it, we were like, Oh, this song is going to be so much fun to play live. And like, I already know what the lights are going to look like. And we kind of had already laid out and laid the groundwork for what this record was going to look like and sound like live. And so, yeah, it's, it's a little, it's a little heartbreaking. I miss it. It's the, like I said, it's the only thing that really makes me truly happy. I always say that I'm I'm SD 2.0 and I'm on stage. I become like the best version of myself. And it's really the only time where I feel like I can do and say and be whatever I want to be for that hour I'm on stage. And so being in my, you know, little apartment and, you know, Again, Adam is so cute. He'll just be like, let's watch your Glastonbury set from 2014 on YouTube. And, you know, I'll just, to me, like, all I can do is just like relive those moments through watching them on, on the internet. You know, that's kind of the only thing that I can do. Yeah. And and as fans, we're doing the same thing, going back and watching YouTube videos and sort of trying to embrace the experience for me, it's the thing that I miss the most. Of course, I miss my friends and family, but I oh, miss yeah. music like hardcore. What are you listening to these days? Ooh, I'm listening to the the Arca record. I don't know it. Arca's incredible. Um, she produced a lot of Rosalia's early stuff, and she just came out with her own solo record. It's incredible. What else am I listening to? I'm like, I've been like listening to the Transpotting album, like the Transpotting soundtrack from like the nineties and just having a rave in my apartment by myself. Perfect. Um, my boyfriend and I like to listen to Kim Petras and dance around the living room. That's like our, one of the first things I asked Adam on our first date was what are your feelings on Kesha? And it was, that was a litmus test. Cause if you don't like, Kesha, we're definitely not going to get along. I love that. And, <laughs> and he passed. He was like, oh, I'm obsessed with Kesha. I was like, we're going to get along just fine. <laughs> Let's start talking about those babies. Exactly. I was like, and when are you impregnating me again? Like, when is that happening? But yeah, we both love to like dance around a pot. He loves Robin too. We've been dancing around the living room to Robin. And we'll put on, um, oh, the new Taylor Swift record. Folklore is incredible. But yeah, like we'll just put on music and cook and, you know, we're super cute. We're a super cute couple. (laughs) Anything last that we did not address about diabetes or your music or anything going on that you want to make sure my listeners are aware of? I I mean, I guess stay tuned. I think we're going to try and figure out as soon as we can what touring looks like when it's safe. And I just hope that I get to see everyone out there when it's safe and when we're able to do it in the right way so that people feel comfortable in a space with other people watching music. Cause that's the other thing is like, I don't think that I would feel, you know, when I would go see live music 
I would go see shows because I felt like I was in a safe space and like I could really let go and like let the music just wash over me and affect me. And I would feel, you know, I felt like I was in a safe place where I could truly feel the music. And I can't imagine doing that now. And so I I just don't think that I would want to go on tour until it's really safe for people to to go and be like, oh, I'm going to be safe in this either enclosed space or open air theater or whatever. Like, I'm not going to get sick because of it. And so I guess to the listeners, like, I really, I can't wait to get out there. And I hope that you're enjoying Women in Music Part 3. And I speak for my sisters and I when I say, like, we can't wait to see you out there on the road when it happens. I can't wait either. It needs to happen soon, which I know it's not but I miss it so much. So I hear you. You know, it's funny. I'm super claustrophobic. And although I go to tons of shows, I have such an issue with people being close to me. Now I am like desperate for gross, sweaty people to be next (laughs) to me. (laughs) Longing for that. I know. I know. Trust me. I get it. I have tinges of that too. But I mean, my fear comes from, I had like a, a bad experience in a mosh pit when I was in high school. Mm. It's rude with you know, you. you know that's a, that's another story for another day. We'll talk about like <laughs> being a woman in the music industry component of things on a different at a different time. Absolutely. Well, thank you <laughs> for doing this. I really appreciate it. <laughs> thank you for having me. This is awesome. You're doing honestly. You're doing God's work. People need to know these stories and hear these stories. So I truly thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do any of this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com and follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor, Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer, Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music, and Amanda Grisillo for the design.